good morning again, everybody. It's so good to see you on this Lord's Day. And I want to say thank you for worshiping through song. I want to say thanks to Pastor Jonathan, all our worship leaders here in the blended room, as well as Alan and the band and all those who are leading in our contemporary service. Thank you for worshiping the Lord through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and of course, open your Bible, if you would, in the New Testament to the little book of James. James, just five chapters, 108 verses, filled with practical instruction for us. And you see the title of today's message. It's called How to Triumph or How to Win, How to Have Victory, How to Triumph Over trials. And as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to offer a warm welcome to everybody in our contemporary service, as well as those of you who are joining online or on TV. We're really glad you're a part of this service this morning as well. Now, if you're new to Ingleside, you may not know why we're looking at the book of James this morning. It's because it's a part of our chapter a day readings this last week. And if you're not in on that journey yet, you can get in on it. I encourage you to try it out, see if it's a good fit for you. Text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up with your email address and join in with hundreds of us as we're reading a chapter of God's word together every day and applying it to our lives. Now, if you have read with me through the book of James over the last week, you know that it's not exactly like all of the other epistles, uh, the letters of the New Testament that you may be more familiar with. Now, you recall the New Testament has four stories of the life of Christ, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then there's a book of Acts. It's the story of the spread of the gospel and churches planted all over the Mediterranean world, the beginning of the mission. And then after that, there are letters, many of them written by the Apostle Paul to the churches that were founded or that he was encouraging. So you have Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, on down the road. And then you get to a little letter like the book of James. Now, as we're going to discover here in a moment, it begins like a letter. It identifies the author, the recipients. It says, greetings. But if you have read the letter with me this last week, you know that as you read it, it really doesn't feel like some of the other epistles. In fact, it may feel more like some of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It may feel more like, say, the book of Proverbs because there are a lot of sayings and aphorisms and uh, easily memorable kinds of practical instruction in it. Uh, in fact, some have called the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's really a wisdom book, and it's one of the earliest books uh, in terms of its composition in the New Testament. Most scholars think it was written between 40 and 45 AD. So if Jesus died 33 AD, 45 AD at the outset, it was written 12 years after uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So it's one of the earliest written documents that's included in the New Testament. And so I want you to hear with me this morning, I think, this practical instruction, encouragement 
that James is going to give us about something we all will face. Well, let's just look at it. Let's begin in verse 1. Are you, are you ready? You have your Bible in front of you, outline in front of you. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greeting. So who are these 12 tribes? They are likely uh, small groups of uh, Jewish background Christ followers who have now left Israel, left the promised land, and they're scattered all around the Mediterranean world in small churches, house churches likely. And James is writing this letter of encouragement and instruction to them. So now who is this James? Um, you, you know, if you have read the Bible much, uh, that there's more than one James in the New Testament. Uh, probably one of the ones your mind would go to, and mine as well, would be uh, James and John, the two brothers who were Jesus' apostles, and they were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They were uh, fishermen alongside Andrew and Peter. But that's not the James who is here. Uh, a second might be James, son of Alphaeus, who's listed among the apostles. But most think, no, that's not the James who is here either. Instead, this James, all the evidence seems to suggest, was actually the brother, or more precisely, the half-brother of Jesus, his name is listed in Matthew 13, 55, after it's describing Jesus there, and the people are saying, isn't this Jesus? Didn't he grow up in the carpenter shop in Nazareth? And aren't his brothers, and then it lists the names of his brothers, James, and it goes on down and lists the others. So, so if Jesus was the firstborn for Mary and Joseph, miraculously albeit, the second born was apparently, or at least the second male was, was James. And so this James grew up with Jesus in Nazareth. This James grew up in the carpenter shop. This James played outside with him. This James sat around the table with him. This James slept under the same roof with our Lord. And he says... James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss something that's tucked away, that's hiding in that first verse. I think it is actually one of the most powerful affirmations of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, but it's hiding but I want to bring it out of hiding so you can see it. So let me just ask it this way. How many of you have brothers and sisters? You have brothers and sisters? Yeah, a whole bunch of you have brothers and sisters. I have brothers. I don't have any sisters. I'm, I'm the fourth of five boys. My mother and daddy had uh, their firstborn and then their secondborn and their thirdborn, three years apart. They're 15, 12, nine years older than me. And then there was a nine-year gap, same mom and daddy, and I came along. Yep, you got it. <laughs> and then they said, you know, he's so far behind, we don't want to leave him down here by himself. And so then they had another, and lo and behold, it was my little brother Terry showed up three years later. So five boys, 
and I am the fourth of five, right? I think my mother kept thinking, surely the Lord will give me a little girl. Surely the Lord will give me a little girl. She got four blasted boys, and uh, I mean five blasted boys, and I'm the fourth of them. Well, now, if you grow up in a home full of boys, what? You just know about one another, right? I mean, there was a big age difference, but anytime we get together, man, we would compete and we would play ball and we would wrestle and sometimes we would argue and sometimes you know how you're going to relate to your siblings, right? And you, you know about them. You know their strengths, their weaknesses, their ups. You, you know your brother and your sister. And I would say, I'm so grateful, uh, Brothers all in relatively good health, still living uh, and, and in New Orleans and Nashville and Knoxville and Tupelo, Mississippi and here in Macon where we are. And we don't get together so often, but we have immense respect for one another and love for one another and we care for one another and we pray for one another. And when somebody's having a challenge, we support one, one another. But you all, can I just tell you today, I am quite confident that none of my brothers would ever introduce themselves the way James introduces himself in verse one. They would never say, I'm Terry, the slave. Do you see it? I am Terry McCoy, the servant of the Lord Tim McCoy. He would say, no, I'm never going to do that. That's my brother. I'm not going to do that. So why would James do that? Why would James say, I'm James, a servant, a slave, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because James, who had grown up with Jesus in Nazareth, saw him leave home, saw him begin to teach, saw him begin to heal, eventually saw him go to the cross and saw him die. James didn't believe all the way up to then. But when James saw his brother, whom he knew intimately, raised bodily from the dead, he said, he's not just my brother, he's my Lord. Don't you see and oh, what power there was in that confession. And it rings true and authentic even today. And so this James, the brother of our Lord, I want you to hear his words. Because this James became a leader then in the Jerusalem church. And extra biblical sources tell us that he was actually put to death because of his faith. He was put to death because he believed his brother to be the son of God. You don't die for a lie like that. The sources say at the edict of the high priest, he was thrown off of the temple in Jerusalem and when it didn't kill him, then they stoned him to death, mid 60s AD. And so that's the James who is writing. And notice how he begins. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. Reckon it, count it, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I want you to notice what he does not say. He does not say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials, right? What is he acknowledging? He's acknowledging that if you live long enough in this world, you are going to have trials. And then he says they are trials, and then he says of various kinds. Now, if I were to ask you to help me make a list today of the kinds of trials people in this room might be facing, what do you think our list might include? Some would be facing uh, health-related trials. I hear of those almost every week. Uh, pray over a long prayer list every week of people in this church family who are facing health trials. Uh, there will be some marital trials. I hear about those almost every week. Of those who have hit rocky places, bumpy roads, difficult times, the trials coming in their marriage and they're saying, Lord, help me know how to get through this. There may be trials related to your kids. There may be trials related to your job. There may be trials related to your finances. Trials come in a whole variety of ways, right? And why do they come? Trials come because we live in a fallen world. It's broken. Trials come because of our own sin sometimes. Trials come because of our own foolishness sometimes. Trials come sometimes... Uh, because we are followers of Christ. But James says, now listen, and isn't it interesting? It's the first thing he addressed. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then he tells us why. Before we look at the why, I want you to write in what the big idea is for today. Here it is. My attitude, your attitude, toward our trials, my attitude toward my trials, in other words, my perspective, how I'm oriented, what I think about it internally, how I process my trial, my attitude toward my trials should be one of joy. It means one of gladness, one of hope, one of optimism. Now, that's counterintuitive, is it not? Because whenever we have trials, by definition, it means there's some pain, there's some difficulty, there's some challenge, there is some pressure, there's some uncertainty. And, and, and just a normal response to that is, to gripe or to complain or to bellyache or to be sour or to have a Eeyore-ish kind of perspective about it, right? But James said, wait a minute, count it all joy. So my attitude toward my trials should be one of joy. And so the important question is why, how, what's the basis for choosing joy? And the answer is, write it in, because God has a good purpose. God has a good purpose for the trials in my life. Now you say, well, what are those good purposes? Well, look again at verses three and four. He says, for you know 
that the testing of your faith, a trial will test your faith. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word means perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And what's the full effect when by faith you persevere through the trial? It is so that you may be perfect. It means complete, mature, fully developed, lacking in nothing. So let's go ahead and fill in the next three blanks. Write it in. What do trials produce when I walk through them by faith? Trials, one, will purify my faith. In other words, God may strip away everything that is extraneous, everything that's false, everything that's not solid. He purifies my faith. God uses trials to produce in me staying power. You know, the way you learn to have courage and grit and staying power is not when everything's easy, but when it's hard, when there's a trial. That's how you grow toward the kind of tinsel strength uh, faith-wise God intends. So God uses trials to purify our faith, to produce staying power in us, and trials also perfect our character. It leads us to maturity um, and to Christ-likeness. You know, as I look back uh, across the people who've influenced my thinking and my heart spiritually, one of them is a pastor from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And he wrote, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. What is he saying? He's saying that God uses trials and pain to grow us in Christ. Helen Keller, many of you would recognize that name. She became deaf and blind when she was 19 months old, but ended up living an extraordinary life of influence. And what she wrote was, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. It's only through the experience of trial and suffering that the soul can be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. So you see, there is this wisdom rooted in Scripture and affirmed across generations that God allows and God brings trials to our lives. Not to discourage us, not to defeat us, not to destroy us, but he brings trials to challenge us, to develop us, to grow us, and to mature us for our own good and for his glory. And so he says, because you know that I am sovereign, good, and wise, even in the pain of the trial, I want you to choose to trust me and to choose joy, to choose hope, to choose gladness, to know the trial is not the end of the story and I will bring good out of it in the end. You know, I thought it might be good if we just said out loud, I think what the heart of this takeaway is. And I think I can get it down to three words. 
I think it is, James is saying, in the middle of the trial, I want you to choose joy. And so I've been saying it this morning. I've been saying, I choose joy. Some of you are regular Ingletide attenders, and you know I got a little congestion going on, right, this morning. Uh, Sound a little husky up here. And uh, speaking three times on Sunday morning with a cold is something of a trial. And so I've been saying all morning, Lord, I choose joy right in the middle of this. That's a minor thing compared to some of the things going on in our lives. And I want you to say that out loud with me today. It may sound funny coming out of your lips, but let's just say it out loud. Just say, I choose joy. You ready? One, two, three. Okay, that was, that was pretty good. How about the men in the room? Can I just hear you? One, two, three. How about the ladies in the room? One, two, three. What about the under 40s in the room? Can I hear you? One, two, three. What about the over 40s in the room? Can I hear you? One, two, three. When they ask you at the restaurant, what was the message about today? That's it. Now let's apply this practically, even beyond the application we've already made. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a principle here for moms and dads and for grandparents who love their kids. I'm going to assume everybody in the room has kids love them and want the best for them. And, um, so what happens when you're thinking about your child's life and the challenges they might face. You ever tempted to just want to protect them from every challenge, from every difficulty, from every child? I mean, from every child? You know, like, uh, any of you ever rescued your child when they forgot something and didn't take it to school with them? Yeah, I can tell from your response. You have. How many times have you done that? Do you think there's ever a point where you ought to just say, yeah, I know you forgot it. Good luck. (laughs) Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist. He says, um, imagine you have a child and you have a script of their entire life. You get an eraser. You can edit it. You can erase anything on the script you want to. You only have five minutes, though. You do a quick read, your child goes to school, but they have a little bit of a learning disability. They have a tough time reading, it's hard for them. In high school, they're pretty popular, they have friends, but one of their friends dies of cancer. After high school, they get in the college they want to attend, but then there's a car crash and your child actually loses a limb, goes through a difficult depression. A few years later, your child gets a great job, but then they lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child gets married, but then they go through the grief of uh, separation. You get the idea? So you've got an eraser. What would you be tempted to erase? 
Most parents would be tempted to erase all the pain. In fact, John Ordberg commenting on this study says, I'm part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents because we're constantly trying to swoop into our kids' lives and make sure no one's mistreating them, no one's disappointing them, no one is overwhelming them. We want them to have one unobstructed success after another. He said he saw this on full display one year at Halloween. He said a mom came to our door to trick or treat. I thought, why didn't she send in her kid? She said, well, the weather's a little bad. <laughs> she was driving, so he didn't have to walk in the mist. But he said, why not send him at least to the door? She said, well, he had fallen asleep in the car. So she didn't want him to have to wake up. And I felt like saying, well, why don't you eat all his candy too? <laughs> Get his stomach ache for him. <laughs> then he can be completely protected. No. Now, of course, we're going to love and protect our kids. But sometimes, like our Heavenly Father does for us, guess what? Moms and dads will do. We'll say, no, no, this trial, this challenge, this difficulty, this one's going to help you grow. I'm not going to rescue you, but I am going to give you the encouragement you need to grow through it. Well, that's in fact what happens in our passage here. Uh, look at the next verses. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it'll be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So not only should we choose joy, but we do that, number two, write it in, knowing that God gives us the spiritual resources we need even as we choose joy. He gives us the spiritual resources we need. What are they? They are three. He gives us wisdom. And how does he give us the wisdom? Through prayer, have to ask him for it. And the prayer has to be fueled by faith. You have to believe that God can give you the wisdom and the resources to get through the trial, and he will. And once you, and once you begin to ask him for wisdom, how do you know it's his wisdom when it comes to get you through the trial? James 3.17 tells us. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, that word pure means without moral defect or blemish. So if what you think is wisdom is immoral, biblically, it's not God's wisdom because God's wisdom is pure. Secondly, that wisdom from God is peaceable. It means free from anxiety and inner turmoil. So whenever you're looking for God's wisdom to get you through the trial, you, you, you ask the question, okay, internally, in my spirit, in my soul, can I be at peace about this direction? Number three, that wisdom is gentle. It means uh, gracious, forbearing, kind. Number four, that wisdom is open to reason. It means persuadable, willing to listen. It means that you don't make a, an inflexible kind of commitment, but you're willing to listen to the wisdom of others. Full of mercy 
And good fruits, it means it's filled with kindness and concern. Impartial means not prejudiced. Sincere means genuine, authentic. No pretense or show. And don't you see what's happening here? God is saying, I'm going to use the trial for your good. So I want you to trust me and I want you to choose joy in it because I am sovereign and good and wise. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. But I'm going to give you the wisdom you need to walk through this trial. Well, let me give you the rest of the, these verses and what they suggest. Just write it in number three, verses 9 and uh, through 11. Teach us that God allows trials to come to both the poor and the rich. Nobody's exempt. And his grace is sufficient for both. And then the passage finishes, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So number four, God rewards those who persevere. God rewards those who persevere faithfully and triumph over trials. Now, how does he reward us? With inner blessedness says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial and the crown of life. It's the laurel wreath given to the athletic victor. And what is the crown? It's not a jewel encrusted crown like you would see on the Queen of England. No, it's the laurel wreath that points to the eternal life that we have in Christ. You know what I wish today? I wish, I wish it were possible this morning to just be able to pull up next to every person in this room who's walking through a significant trial and say, listen, you can do it. By God's grace in Christ, you can do this. God loves you. He's not gonna abandon you. He's gonna give you the resources you need. And guess what? Even more than that, He's going to use this chapter of trial, maybe heartache and pain and suffering. He's going to use it for your good and for his glory. So you keep on trusting him. You keep on loving him. And you keep on choosing joy. Oh, that's the burden of today's message. And I hope it's just for you. Let's pray together. Father, I, I love your word and I love the way your truth comes to strengthen and encourage us. Lord, don't let anybody in the room who feels like their head's just above water, don't let them sink. Lord, don't let them drift away. Lord, I'm so thankful that even as they're holding on to you by faith, the more important thing is you are holding on to them in the grip of your grace and you will never let us go. So Lord, we affirm that, we celebrate that today, that you hold us in the palm of your hand and you will never let us go, even during the season of trial. We love you, O oh Lord, and we offer this prayer of gratitude to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.